Hi. <laughs> Good you're all here today. Um, welcome to Cornerstone. I don't normally start by crying. <laughs> but dang, that guy, that Todd, he's really a softie, my goodness. Um, I was born and raised in Wyoming. I have guns. And I've been face to face with a grizzly bear. So there you go. <laughs> Uh, it's good to have you here this morning. We've uh, all summer long, I don't know if you, how many of you were able to be here, but we've been, we're teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. And it was a great series. And so if, if you weren't here, I would highly encourage you to listen to it. It was really good. And we finished up last week uh, kind of talking about the fear of God and how to, to deal with the fear of God. And this week what we're going to do is we're going to continue our 30-year study of 1 Corinthians. <laughs> so... Really excited. We're going to actually only do half of a verse. That, no, we're, we're going to be diving back into 1 Corinthians 15. So if you got your Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians 15. I'd invite you to. If you need a Bible, uh, these good-looking gentlemen are coming down the aisles, and uh, they'd be uh, more than happy to, to get you a Bible. So just raise your hand if you'd like one. If you don't have a Bible, it's, it's totally, feel free, steal it. We want you to take it with you. And so... Here's what we're going to be doing this morning. I'm going to be using this term story. And so I want to make sure that we all understand what this term story means. Now, every single one of us in here has a story about our life. I've got a story. You've got a story. And in different ways, I've told you my story through uh, when I was born, where I came from, the fact that I'm a really hardcore man. Um, That's my story. And so whenever I'm going to use this word story today, it's not like a fictional fable or a fairy tale. I'm just trying to talk about this idea of a story that that kind of marks who we are and what we're about. Well, a few years ago when I was away on my sabbatical, somebody said, what are you going to do on your sabbatical? And one guy said, gosh, have you ever like looked into your ancestor and your family tree? And I go, gosh, I don't know if I want to. I go, aren't you kind of afraid what you might find back in your family tree? I was afraid it might grow back together at some point. Um, but one of the really fun things about looking into my past was I found out actually where this name Nicewanger came from. I mean, some of you, whenever I say, in fact, the gentleman back there goes, what's your name? <laughs> and it's just, it's, yeah, it's a strange name, but I found out actually that my family comes from Bavaria, which is why I really like donuts, just in case you want to know. <clears throat> and actually it wasn't Nicewanger, it was von Nuschwanger. So from now on, just call me the Vaughn. That's who I am. You know what I'm saying? I found out that my family migrated here late 1600s, early 1700s. Uh, my uh, great whatever grandfather was, a, was an officer in the Revolutionary War, a well-decorated officer. So I'm looking at my family tree just like, dang, I've got great genetics. I'm from Bavaria. <laughs> what better of a person could I be? Then I looked at the other side of my family. My mom's last name is Arnold. Now, I started to follow it back, and all of a sudden, I arrived at this person named Benedict. So quickly, I was like, it's nice, Wonger, nice, Wonger, that's who I am. So I'm sitting there, I talk to my parents about it, and I'm like, so let's talk about this Arnold thing, so we're related to Benedict? And she goes, yeah, that probably, that could have been your whatever great whatever grandfather. And I quickly wanted to take that part of my story 
and throw that part of my story out. Come to find out, he was just a long-lost uncle that went the wrong way, and the good genetics came through my family. So anyway, so it's all good. Everything is great. Everything is fine. But what Paul's going to do today, and it's going to have a little bit of a difference, because when we talk about God's story and us in relation to who God is, the story that he's going to bring in is just as true, and there's just as many things that maybe we don't know what to do with with this story. But the problem with God's story is not the story. The problem is us. That's the big problem. That's what he's going to be trying to get across to us. We're going to use this word story in the same way that my story is true and your story is true. We're going to treat the scriptures as this idea that God's story is very true. Now, in the book of 1 Corinthians, this is what Paul's been trying to do. He's been trying to tell them who they are. This is their big problem is they don't understand the story that they're a part of. In fact, he's, he constantly has to keep dealing with them is that they've bought into wrong stories, wrong ideas, wrong thoughts, and they're bringing them into the church. And what it's doing is it's messing everything up. And so in other words, one of the things we've said about 1 Corinthians is they've missed the point. And if you don't think you've missed the point, you've what? Missed the point. Okay, that's what we're talking about. Now, in this particular aspect of it, you can go open up to, to 1 Corinthians 15, put it there, and we'll just kind of maybe take a little bit of journey through some of this stuff. But in 1 Corinthians 15, he's going to come back to this idea that they've missed the point using this idea of story. Now, the word that we're going to focus in on today is this word resurrection that's found in verse 12. Go ahead and look down there. This is going to become the word. This is the thing that they've missed the point on. They've missed the point of what is the resurrection and what's it about and what's the meaning of it inside of our story. And what Paul's going to do is give this lengthy discussion all throughout the book of the chapter 15 to try to help us understand what is this resurrection and why is it so important and what is the significance when we look at that and in any way say, you know what, maybe this resurrection thing's not important. It's, it's this thing that we don't really like about our family tree. He's going to help us understand there's significance to it. Now, all throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, this is important. They were very embarrassed about certain aspects of the story in which Paul came in and told them. Now, let me give you an illustration. In chapter 1, one of the key aspects that they were embarrassed about was that they were following a Savior that was crucified on the tree on the far end of the Roman Empire on a trash heap. And in their heads, they were thinking to themselves, there is no way whatsoever our grand Savior, the King of all kings and Lord of all lords, could have ever been crucified in that kind of a way. And what they started to do is pull away from it. And that's why Paul had to say, no, no, remember when I came in amongst you? I preached Christ and Him crucified. It's essential to our story. If you remove Christ and Him crucified, you remove the guts of our story. Don't do it. And so he's really talking to this idea. It's important to us. They, they were exiting the Scriptures. In fact, if you look down in verse 3 in chapter 15 and also in verse 4, he's going to connect it to this idea that we just have to stay in the Scriptures. It's according to the Scriptures. This is how God's people live. And in fact, in chapter 4, verses 6-7, through seven, he says, don't go past what's written. Just stay in your story. That's who we are. That's how we're defined. This is where we come from. They're at a crossroads in which they were arguing over this idea. And you can see this back in chapter 14, 37. Just this idea of what does it mean to even be spiritual? Who are the truly spiritual people? And to be honest with you, this is why I think he left chapter 15 for last. You know how you always leave the best for last? He's just holding on to the resurrection the whole way through the letter going, 
you're going to wait till I bring this one out. He's addressing all those different issues. But one of the ones that he was holding back was this group of people that looked at the resurrection. And they said, you know what? Our world doesn't like that concept so much, so let's just tweak it. Let's twist it a little. So the people are, it's so we're not embarrassed in front of people to talk about this whole thing in which Jesus rose from the dead. Let's just tweak it a little to make it compatible to people. That's what we're going to do. So they massaged the message of the gospel. They massaged the message of the cross. They massaged the message of the resurrection. And Paul's saying to them, be careful what you massage because you might massage the power of the gospel right out of it. Don't do it. Keep it in there. I think that's why they were embarrassed about Paul. They were very image driven. See, the word Paul, do you know what it means? It means little one. Of all the things he could have changed his name to from Saul, he changed it to Paul. Little one. Hi, little one. They were embarrassed by him. Why? Because when you go back to chapter 2, verse 3, it says that he came in weakness and fear amongst trembling. Even the term that he uses when you look down in verse 8, chapter 15, he calls himself this one, he says, that was untimely born. That little word that's used in the ESV, one untimely born, is actually a very sensitive and gentle word. What it actually means is miscarriage or abortion. I was this miscarriage or abortion. Now, where did he get that term from? That's weird. Because that's probably what the Corinthians were calling him. That he wasn't the best apostle. He wasn't the greatest. He was just this miscarriage is all he was. He was just little Paul. To which Paul responds back to them. I love that. And he says, you're right, fine. I'm little Paul. I'm the miscarriage. But isn't it incredible that God would use the weak of this world to rescue you out of darkness? That God used what wasn't to come in and to bring to light what is true. Isn't it amazing that God used the weak to explain a, a Messiah that came here in such weakness and come across as this one that didn't seem like the Messiah? Isn't it amazing that when I came in, the grace of God landed into my life, then landed into your life, and He's just saying to us, do you get it? That's how God works, and you've got to be careful not to remove anything from the gospel. You can see it in chapter 5. They were embarrassed by the fact that they had a, a guy amongst them and you know, they would, that was sleeping and living with his stepmom. And they said, you know, don't judge lest you be judged. Don't do that. Let's just all get along. The Rodney King moment. Chapter 6, they didn't want to be run over and appear weak, and so they were taking one another to court. Why? Because they didn't want the image to be ruined of who they are. By the time you get to chapter 7, the really spiritual people in the Roman world were these ones in various like religious thought and inside of philosophical systems. If they didn't have sex, they were somehow more spiritual. And so they made a rule within all the church by this group of people. Nobody's to have sex, even married people, because those people are very spiritual. Image was everything. By the time you get to chapter 8 through 10, they, they were embarrassed because there were people within their church that weren't eating food sacrificed to idols. And so they wanted to get these people to eat because they didn't want to look embarrassed anymore. In 12 through 14, the, the rest of the Roman and Greek world believed the more crazy your spiritual ability was, the cooler you were, the more spiritual you were, the more that your image looked out there. And they, they came into it and they said, that's why tongues is the one we want to focus on. We want to look good. We want the greater gift. This is important that we're going today. If they had understood what their story was, they would not get caught up in image. You know the commercial image is everything? 
That is a lie from the pit of hell. Image is not everything. Christ is everything. That's what they missed. They missed that their story had its culmination, had its climax in Jesus Christ. He defined everything they were. Chapter 6, when He died, the promise was He was going to come back one day so therefore we can live these lives free from sexual impurity because we are temples of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 11, we celebrate now this supper with an understanding that we are this group of people set free from sin with the promise of the return of Jesus Christ one day. We love radically chapter 13 because when Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose again, He changed the entire world and its system, starting first with this group of people called the church. What He wants them to get is this message has implications. Don't change it because it's not about you. This entire story is about Jesus. Don't mess with me. Paul's point is they don't need to be embarrassed by their story. This is the true story. It's the only hope for humanity. And every time they tweak the story to fit culture, his point, you're going to rip the guts out of the gospel. Don't change the story. Now that in mind, we get into verse 1. He comes in in verse 1 and just says this, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, this story that we're, just, we're talking about right now, that you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, and that he says this then, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then to He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom He says are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. That's our story. He says, you want to know your story? That's your story. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, not only is that part of your story, that's the climax of the story. It gets no better. The day that Jesus Christ hung on the cross and they nailed Him to it, everyone thought they were winning. Little did they realize with every pound of every nail upon that cross, He was defeating sin absolutely conclusively. He went down in the angelic realm and inside of the spiritual realm in some way amongst the dead and He declared Himself to be King of kings and Lord of lords. Then the Father, three days later, ripped Him from that grave and declared to everyone, My Son is King of kings and Lord of lords. He's defeated sin and Satan and death. Therefore now, this whole story, after reaching its climax and its resolution, it's starting to move towards an inevitable reality He's going to talk about in 20 and 28. Our King Jesus will win one day. That's cool. In light of everything, Jesus will be victorious. He wants us to get that. That's the gospel that he preached to them. That's what was of first importance. That's why he says, don't do, don't, 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 don't reject certain things because you might believe in vain. So the story that Paul preached to them, he says, has some real realities to it. Number one, there's a Messiah. There's a shameful death. There's a burial that took place. There's a resurrection on the third day. There's Cephas and the twelve and the five hundred and and James, his own brother. And then he says at the very end of it, this story, there was this dude that gets torn from the womb and entered into this whole sequence. This last person before Jesus went away, Paul himself sees him. In other words, 
the message that Paul came and proclaimed to them, you can trust. It's the message that he didn't just come up with on a whim. It was a message that was attested to by hundreds of people. It's one of the most well-attested events ever inside of the history of humanity. Jesus Christ is risen. That's what we believe. And it all happened in accordance with the Scriptures, verses 3 and 4. What's cool about this, I don't think he refers to other New Testament accounts. I don't think he's talking about the Gospels here. I don't think he's even trying to do proof texts like Isaiah 53 or Psalm 16 to try to force us to understand something. I think what he's saying is in this grand story, the whole Old Testament begged for the reality that one day a Savior was going to come. It was going to reach its climax. And he said, the story that I told you has reached its climax. Good news. Jesus Christ has won. That's what he's trying to say to him. This is the message he came in and talked about. It's the message where everything is moving there. It's a message that made a difference. It's the message when you get down like into verse 9. It's the message that also transformed his life. Look what he talks about with that. He says, I might be the list of all the apostles and worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. In fact, it was on the contrary. People saw it. The Scriptures attested to it. For 2,000 years, the Gospel has been transforming lives. His point? You can trust it. It's not in vain. But don't tweak it. Don't mess with it. Don't mess with the Gospel. Not only that, he says... But the importance of all of it is he said it has this culminating reality called verse 12, the resurrection. This is what they were embarrassed about. Now, will you sit there and go, well, why? Why? why, why? That doesn't make any sense. Well, don't we want to live forever? I mean, who doesn't want to? This word resurrection that he uses here was more than just like a general term for life after death. The Greeks and the Romans had an idea of life after death. You'll even see this. I don't know how many of you saw um, Gladiator. Was that what it was? No. Was it Gladiator? What was Russell Crowe in? Gladiator, okay. I knew I'd eventually land on it. But remember he died and he went where? Does anybody remember? The Elysian Fields. And remember how when they went to the Elysian Fields, it was like, whoo! son and his wife and everything's floating. That's not what Paul's talking about. Even today after people die, I think we still have this weird idea that we're just going to be these disembodied souls that float around in heaven. Even the cartoons we grow up on, every time they died, what happened to them? They were sitting on a cloud doing what? Hang on. Man, as a kid, I'm like, I don't want to go to heaven. I don't even like harps. This belief in the resurrection had been something that was popular in his day. In fact, it was a huge debate between a group of people called the Pharisees, what Paul came out of, and another group called the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees did. There was really probably only one religious group outside of Christians that believed in the resurrection. They were called the Zoroastrians, which 
I wouldn't know why would you ever want to be called that, but that was the only group that kind of had this idea of resurrection. Every other group out there flat out rejected that resurrection was even a possibility. To which Paul speaks into it. And when you look back down in that little creed, starting in verse 3, he says, let me tell you what took place. Our Savior was buried. In other words, He was put in the ground. People were there and they saw it. In fact, if you want to, you can go back and ask James, his brother who rejected him. Even James will tell you this one that now believes in Jesus Christ. We saw him buried. We saw him there for three days. And after three days, just to make sure that he was dead, this Jesus escaped from it and he didn't come back as this floating thing going, peace be you. He came back and he ate with them. They touched him. They were with him. Paul says, that's the message we brought to you. Sometimes we'll even talk about this idea of Jesus being raised and going to heaven as if somehow he went up as a spirit, but that's not what he, the word he was talking about. He was saying that at the end of all things, every one of you here that knows Jesus Christ, the greatest news in the world is that we will live in just as physical a world as we do now. We will interact. We will talk. We will touch. We will live in that same kind of a way. We're not going to be floating in this ethereal nothingness. He is coming back. And when He comes back, we will see Him because we will be like Him. He's saying that's who we are. To the Greeks, they probably would have thought, man, this is just a resuscitated corpse thing. That's weird. We don't want to live in this world forever. And you can even see this like in Acts 17 when he was talking to the Athenians. It wouldn't have sounded like eternal life to them because they're thinking, who would want to stay in this world? And Paul would look at them and say, that's my point. Who would want to stay in this world? We want to go to a world in which sin is going to be dealt with and death will be gone forever. That's the world we want to go to. We don't want to stay in these bodies. I mean, my gosh, this week... Oh, my body's falling apart. Look, you haven't seen me for a little while, but it's getting bigger. <laughs> Y'all are falling apart too. We don't want to go to that. But Paul's understanding of resurrection is not that. And the sum, look down in verse 12, there's these some group of people where he talks about that there's that there's some who say that there's no resurrection. He's saying, that's not what I'm talking about. But the people inside of Corinth, they were just embarrassed by this idea. Come on, Paul. The rest of our world believes this. Can't we just tweak the gospel a little bit? Can't we just adjust it a little bit? Come on, Paul. And Paul would say, don't tweak it. At its very heart, he's saying to them, it's something completely different. It's good news and about an event that happened inside of our world. An event that because of it, the world will never be the same. And those who believe it and those that, that live by it and those that are going to be changed by it, we're groups of people now that the Gospel says we're never going to be the same. When all of us, those of us in here that know Jesus, when Christ gripped our life, you've got to understand, nothing was ever going to be the same again. Man, one of the hard things I think about kids that grow up in the church, there's a blessing to it, don't get me wrong, but sometimes there's a curse because we've grown them up in morality. They don't see the difference. For those of us, though, that we're going down the bad path, that we're moving astray from God when He rescues us out, oh my gosh, when Jesus Christ, when I encountered Him, my whole world was shaken upside down. 
He says, that's what I ran into. That's why he says, look down in verse 58. He says, this is the case now. If this is really true, my brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This message can be trusted. This message adds depth to our life. This message is an anchor in those times when everything feels like it's falling apart. This message should not be tinkered or fiddled with it. Don't touch it. Just believe it. Some of the Corinthians, I'd say this. I feel like we're always trying to reinvent what God has given us. It's good, you know, that all Christians live by a set of some ethical commands. It's good that we have good ideas. But Jesus wasn't a guru teaching the way to God that one could follow as he sees fit. When Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, he was announced as Messiah. He is king, is the idea. He's not just this guy that we can kind of do whatever we want with, is Paul's point. When he came back, he came back as truly this king of kings and lord of lords. He was the Messiah, Israel's Messiah. That's the, the world's Messiah. And even when you get to Paul, like in Acts 17, that's what they were proclaiming, is that this Jesus whom you've seen, who came back from the dead, by being raised from the dead, Romans 5, He was announced as King of all kings and Lord of all lords. He's not Gandhi. He's not Muhammad. He's not these other people. He is the King. And that's what he wants them to get. He's not just a king that happened to rise from the dead. He rose from the dead and announced, I'm king. So don't tweak it. Don't mess with it. You might rip the heart right out of the gospel. This is why I think he's going to make his stand here. Regardless of verses 13 through 19 now, he's going to start putting together his reasoning for why that this idea of the bodily resurrection of all people is so important. It's not just something that we can flippantly do whatever we want with. Paul gets that virtually every religious group, every idea out there probably is going to reject this out and out, but he wants them to know that inside of this message of a Jesus Christ who came back bodily as for being raised from the dead, and now people one day will also be raised from the dead, he wants them to get that there's power in that message. Don't tweak it. Don't play with it. Don't change it. He was the Messiah. He was declared as Lord. And so what he's going to do starting in verse 13 is he's going to start building an argument. He's going to, he's going to build this link that's so important between sin and death. Now, you can see in there, especially like in verse 17, look down in your Bible so you can kind of see the centerpiece of his argument. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Why would he make that argument? Well, on a positive side of it, we could put it this way. If Jesus has been raised, that means He's really the Messiah. And since He's really the Messiah and has been raised from the dead, His death now turns out to have not just been like this tragic, horrifying end to just one more Messiah that's come along. Instead, what it becomes as the surprising means of dealing with sin in the world, His resurrection validated the fact that He defeated sin. Now, he's going to go negative, though. So let's see if we can walk through this negative argument. He says if he wasn't raised from the dead, then he wasn't and isn't the Messiah. 
And therefore, his death on the cross, if he wasn't the Messiah, has no effect whatsoever. Sin has not been dealt with. The world and all of humanity is still in sin. Their denial of the future resurrection of people he wants them to get. If no one has ever raised from the dead and been resurrected, that means Christ has not been resurrected. And if Christ has not been resurrected, then all of us are still sitting here in sin. And we are in terrible trouble when all of us stand before God one day. But he says this statement. I love this. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. His whole argument has to do with this. Don't tweak the gospel. Just tell the truth. It's so hard though, isn't it, sometimes? It's what Paul ran into in, first, or in Acts 17. He's sitting there on the Areopagus preaching and all of a sudden he gets to the point where he said that God has raised Jesus Christ from the dead and it says at that point people begin to mock him. All of a sudden at that point they were kind of going along good and I feel like in Christianity what we like to do is we like to put the good stuff out in front of people. Follow Jesus. He'll make your life better. Really? Right after I came to know Jesus Christ, I went back to tell all my friends about it. They mocked me. I was like, this isn't making my life better. <sighs> in fact, the promise of the gospel is, is that in the same way he asked his son to walk to the cross, he's not afraid to ask the rest of his kids to do the same. So therefore, if the resurrection isn't true, his point then we're a bunch of people that to be pitied above all people. We're stupid. I mean, there's one time, I'll never forget this, I was in my shower one day and I'm like, what if this thing isn't true? And I sat there and I'm like, wow, I'd be an idiot. And then I was like, wait, I'm a pastor. That would make me the biggest idiot. I was sharing Christ one time, another guy and I, and we get to this point and the guy goes, look, even if at the very end of it, if this whole thing is not true, at least you've lived a good moral life. And I stopped the guy. I go, no, 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 that's not it. It has to do with nothing with living a good moral life. Man, I'll tell you what, if suddenly you remove Jesus in the resurrection, this is not true. I'm going to do what Paul says later. I'm going to eat, drink for tomorrow we die. But I'll tell you what, if Jesus is true, I will sacrifice all for the king. That's why this resurrection is so important. And what Paul does in here is he wants them to get this. He wants them to know for not one second does he not believe that it's true. He believes that at the end of the day, and we talked about this in Ecclesiastes, that we live in a world that's full of beauty and splendor and aromas and all these different sounds and it's swarming with life. But the other reality that we have to deal with is it's just marred with sin. It's marred with loss and decay and corruptibility. In other words, we're craving for that time where all of that is gone. And Paul's point is, is in resurrection, it is coming one day for all of us. That's what he wants us to get. And those that look at the resurrection and think it's no big deal, that simply tinker with it, they're cutting the heart out of the gospel. Don't mess with the gospel. But I would say this, it's forced me to ask three questions, and let me just kind of throw these out to you. If this is really true, if we're not just this ancient kind of religious system that's like all the rest, we're living in this pluralistic society trying to do health and wealth and prosperity and security, 
This is the first question I ask myself. Do I really believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ is real? This is not expecting an answer from you, but I would give that question to you. Do you believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is real? Honestly. Like deep in your gut, all those people that witnessed Jesus Christ coming back from the grave, do you believe Jesus Christ is real? Second question. If I do, does my life look like I believe it is real? When I was asking myself this question, I don't know how many of you are like this, but I started going, do I live like the resurrection? And oh my gosh, I became the biggest legalistic jerk on the planet. I'm like, well, if I believe the resurrection is real, then therefore I need one pair of underwear. That's all I need. If the resurrection is real, I need one pair of pants. If the resurrection is real, I need one shirt. I don't need to take showers or shave or comb my hair. That's what we're going to do. We're just going to live this life in which we're going to become ascetics and we're going to beat ourselves up and forego everything. Is that what we're supposed to become like? Ecclesiastes told us no. But if I believe it's real, the question I started to ask myself is, what do I do with that? See, it demands, I think, that we live differently. And here's some of the things that I wrote down for myself. If this is not all there is, if this is only the appetizer of something greater, then I can finally enjoy this life differently because there's more. I don't have to live with the fear of missing something in this life because anything I miss in this life will only come back to me five to twentyfold later. I don't have to be frustrated and angry and disappointed that others, my spouse, my kids, my parents, my friends, my boss, my coworkers, my neighbors, my government, are somehow robbing me of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness because this life isn't all there is. I don't have to try and get everything in this life. The best cars, the nicest houses, the grandest vacations, the greatest thrills, or the most meaningful experiences. I don't have to believe that my bucket list is limited to 75 to 80 years. Instead, I can realize my bucket list is eternal. I can adjust my life to eternity because this is what I have. If the resurrection is true, then those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ are not the most to be pitied, but those who should be the most envied on the planet. This week, the more I got into that, first thing that happens to me is a guy sits me down and he goes, I'd like to talk to you about the political state landscape of the United States. <sighs> what do you want to talk about? One word. Hillary, what are we going to do? The reality of resurrection states, according to Philippians 2, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, including all of our political leaders in this world. The Middle East is not a problem. Why? Because every time you think about it, every day, one day, all those leaders will bend their knee. I don't have to worry about Republicans and Democrats. Now, at the end of it, do we need to care about how we vote? Yes! I've said enough about that over my time here. But at the end of the day, every one of them will bow before the King. Every single one of them only has their life because the King allows it. If he wants any of them out of the way, do you understand the God that had created the entire universe that sent his son out of love for those of us that are his people? He came and he lived a perfect life. He died conquering sin, was buried, rose again three days later, conquering over death. If that God can handle that, he can handle the leaders of the world. 
So therefore, and I know I say this a lot, Christians, turn that frown upside down. My goodness. It's Todd. But Todd, nothing. We need to understand we live in the now with the hope of forever. We need to start making our decisions that way. Here's the third thing. I understand that the things that cause me to be most embarrassed about God's story, and I need to give answers to them. Every one of you in here need to understand you're embarrassed about something about God's story. In other words, the first person that walks up to you and says, how in the world can you as Christians be so mean towards homosexuals? Don't you just feel like the biggest idiot at that point? You're like, oh, I don't hate them. You have an answer for that. See, part of the church, what they're going to do is cave. They're going to say, oh, that's right. You know, God is a God of love, forgetting the fact that because of sin, they will stand before the judgment of the king one day. So therefore, for us to go, oh, it's no big deal. Are you kidding me? That has eternal consequences for people. But we don't have to be jerks. Environmentalism. I always hear Christians say, you know what? I'm just going to burn up anyway, so light the match. Really? What if I told you we're going to give an answer one day for how we've cared for this planet? Todd just found him green. <laughs> Are we going to hug tree? Resurrection states that this world will be resurrected too. And how we care for our bodies, Paul would also, I think, add to this world we should care for it. Not as environmentalist wackos, but as people or stewards of the earth. Todd, what do we do about the Middle East? What do we do about evil and pain in this world? The greatest news in the world is the Bible has the answer to all of those. And every Wednesday for the next few weeks, we're going to be teaching through the story of God. And if you're someone sitting out there going, man, it would be really good for me to get answers to these things, then on Wednesday night, the story of God class, you can show up and you will realize the Bible has the answer for everything. Amen? Not Todd, amen. I mean, I know Jesus is coming back and whatnot, but amen. Raise the roof, Todd. Amen? Okay. Father, thank you so much. We look forward to the day that you return. But in the meantime, Father, would you keep us immovable, steadfast, always engaging in the work of the Lord? Would we learn what Paul said to live as Christ and to die as gain? Father, would you help us to be a church that doesn't tweak the gospel? Father, help us to be people that when it's popular and unpopular, with grace and humility, we tell the truth. Help us to be a church that believes deeply, so deeply in the resurrection, Father, that we would give all for the sake of the King. In your precious name we pray. Amen.